Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 38 of Real Blend, a podcast that was flipped off by Jamie Lee Curtis this week. Yeah. Oh. Kevin, what on earth did you do to anger <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis? Well, first of all, uh, that was a, uh, that, Jake was there. Jake, and Jake, by the way, uh, has texted us in the text chain, said that he loves that photo so much oh, of Jamie Kevin? Lee Curtis flicking, us, flicking me off that he's actually going to get it framed over his bed. And go and, and look at it every night before he goes to sleep. That's Kevin, how can we show Kevin? Can we show the photo? Are we able to show it? Uh, if you want, permission? you want to see it. I think yeah. Gabe has it. Gabe has it oh. ready to go. Gabe has it oh. ready to go. Yes, what? we are. That is Jamie Lee Curtis actually <laughs> giving Kevin double birds. Uh, oh. And I want to just explain. for the record, I do this all the time to Kevin, and no one ever talks about me doing it. <laughs> right? That, She's that's not mad the... at you necessarily, right? <laughs> no, she wasn't mad at me at all. No, no, it was. It was uh, so we. Well, Jake and I, Jake and I'll get into the whole thing about Halloween. But essentially, the deal was she flipped me off, flipped me off jokingly because she was told she couldn't wear glasses for her junket interview because the lights reflect off of her glasses. So I sat down with my glasses on, which oddly enough, I was very close to stepping into that interview with, without my glasses. So I do it sometimes, and, and so that moment wouldn't happen, which is you know it was fun to have it. So, um, but yeah, when we get into the Halloween portion of this show, because Jake and I have some really cool stories about what we saw. Uh, on the back lot of Universal when we were there. Uh, I'll get into more detail about it. Well, it's an iconic photo, and I love it. I love everything <laughs> about it because she's so natural and so authentic. She's great. Yeah, She's the best. Uh, my name is Sean O'Connell. I am the managing director of Cinema Blend, and I am really sad. Sad today because the last what? time that we recorded this this oh, uh, podcast... don't do that. I was with Jake Hamilton and Kevin McCarthy all together in Toronto. So now I have to say hello to them via... Skype and uh and via Facebook where you guys are watching us. Hello, well, gentlemen. How are we you? also know that you're Good sad. You. We also know that you're sad because you just genuinely um are feel left out because you know First Man is a masterpiece and you just uh, haven't yet to have yet to come to that realization. That's we all. will we will get to that also later on in the show. Uh, if you guys have not downloaded the Toronto episode, our special two hour uh, blockbuster epic recording that we recorded uh, when we were all together at the film festival, please head over to iTunes. And download that episode number thirty-seven. What are we on? Thirty-eight? Is that what I just said? I have no idea. Can we uh, say? Can we say that twenty-one thousand people downloaded that episode? That's that. Yeah, that's, of course. Or that's Kevin's insane. mom twenty-one thousand times. This is true. My mom downloaded yes. it twenty-one thousand times. Uh, what a free time Jill what, has. What, what she had to do was go to different computers to create different IP addresses. Right. Twenty-one thousand computers. Worth but it. I, what I love about that is that even though 21,000 people downloaded that episode, that's not even our highest one. Like, I think one of them's over 30, which is great. It's so <laughs> incredible. So I, it's, we, the three of us talk in a text chain frequently about the fact that we can't believe that, that this podcast is reaching so many people. And we love the fact that everybody's sort of responding to it, including. So when you're at iTunes and you're downloading the new episodes, you can leave us a review. We can read them on the show. We promise you guys we would do that, and we have one for this week. Oh, and the race to 100, right? We talked about 51 yeah. star ratings, or 51 star ratings. We need to get to 100 by the end of the year. Jake has said you guys can't do it. Uh, Kevin and I believe in I just you. think that's asking a lot. Well, that's, I, I demand a lot. I'm aware. I'm going to revert back to a Jake line that he uses on people when they say something negative. Yeah. He goes... Not with that attitude. Exactly. So, uh, Jake, a little taste of your own medicine there, my friend. Every time, hey, every time someone says hey, something sweet. negative, he goes, he goes, not with that attitude. Well, this review. Listen, is... I don't like my lines being used against me. All right. <laughs> this review is from from someone named Nyan Cat Forevs, which I don't okay. know what that is. Um, and they called it for the love of the game. 
which I like. That's a nice reference, I guess. Yeah, that's, um, a, that's a strong reference. It's a strong reference. And they say, it's great to hear fellow movie nerds get as excited about films as I and so many of us do. Oh, as I and so many of us do. Again, I need to proofread these before I read them. Kevin, Shake, and Sean are so positive and friendly and don't pretend to be movie snobs. They think some foreign language film is automatically better than Die Hard or The Dark Knight or any other popular film because it's foreign. Now, hey, listen, we like foreign movies too. We just tend to yeah. drift to. And to be, to be fair, like for people outside of America, isn't Die Hard a foreign film? The, the, good point. Excellent. It's all about perspective. Most critics want to show you how smart they are by hating most movies. These guys want to show you how much they love movies like me by talking about films in such a fun, positive, and informative way. Yes. Sean is sorely misguided on topics like Forrest Gump and Die Hard <laughs> 2 and Kill Bill, but he loves and, and Spider-Man 2. One, you mean the one Kill Bill film? <laughs> and Spider-Man 2, as you'll find out. Uh, but he loves movies, and I love these podcasts. Check them out. So that is from Nyan Cats for Evs, which if you if you hear this, please drop us a message and explain what that means. But, but thank you for the review. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's, that was really nice. And anytime someone answer. takes, look... It takes time to to stop what you're doing in a day and, and, and you know, write something. Even if that took, you know, two, three minutes. That's two, three minutes that, that you know, you could be spent doing something else. So I, I appreciate anyone that takes the time to stop and, and sit yeah, and I, like that. So thank you. I also like the idea that, yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's a general consensus around film criticism that I feel like, and again, I'm not pointing any, any names, but I think there's been a consensus around criticism where, like, people, maybe critics appear to, think they're better than other audiences you know what i mean where like they're like oh i know what i'm talking about because i like this movie and it's better than this movie i can't like a popular film so yeah i i like that 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 review has gathered that we are just generally movie lovers and we're not here to appear highbrow or make ourselves think that oh this foreign film will never be as good as, yeah i I, could, I, lo- I love that i love that aspect of because i mean listen we love foreign movies too as we as we said but uh, I think that there is a, uh, a consensus sometimes of a high brownness to right. um, think about it, like what, what is a film critic? A film critic is, is two things. One, someone that has an opinion, which everyone is. And two, someone that I'd argue what in, in any topic has done enough homework to justify that opinion. Right. So if you have an opinion about a movie and you know enough about a topic in order to back it up, then boom, you're a critic. Uh, some yeah. people ha- are, are fortunate enough so that their voice reaches a little bit further than others, but it doesn't take that much to be a critic. All it takes is a little knowledge and, and, you know, one hell of an opinion. Yeah. I remember Absolutely. when I was, when I first started off, uh, in, in like 2000, five or six whatever year the first transformers movie came out which i absolutely love that movie i love the first that was on my top 10 list that year it was in my top 10 so uh and somebody i remember somebody at the critic circle in the dc area was essentially came to me in the idea that you know hey you know when you're making a movie list you probably shouldn't put like something like transformers on there and what I'm, uh, one again, why did he think he had a right to tell you that but that is a consensus again that is a general idea of a critic, right? So, like a Transformers or a Fast and Furious, how can that possibly make wow. a top ten? So, no, but I'm, I'm, that actually is a thought process among critics. So, some critics that think that certain films like that shouldn't be on that list. But again, our lists are favorite, uh, and I can't remember what year it was, but Fast Five was probably in my top ten that year. Uh, I, I love the Fast and Furious movies, so 
again, that review that, that Sean just read, I think uh, I, I'm, I'm glad they picked up on that. That's because yeah. I, I, it wasn't something we ever intended to show. It's just we're just being ourselves. But I'm glad they saw that. That's all. Well, this week's episode, we're going to go through news. We have a ton of trailers we want to react to. Um, Kevin and Jake are going to talk about the fact that they went out to Halloween and did the junket interviews for Halloween. And the boys are going to talk about life itself um, in a non-spoilery type deal. I don't get to see that until Wednesday uh, here in the market. So I'm looking forward to those guys previewing it. We are going to get into a topic that we started on Twitter where um, I made the mistake of telling people that I don't really care for Spider-Man 2. And Which surprises me. It surprised media. me to, to hear you say that. Yeah. Well, I'll get into my Raimi problems uh, later on in the segment. So sharpen your knives and feel free to, to dial into that, that segment. And then this week's blend game is uh, a tribute to the late, great Burt Reynolds. We're going to talk about our favorite Burt Reynolds films. And, um, and I think when somewhere in there, we're going to talk about First Man also because Kevin finally caught up with it and had not by the time we recorded the, the first man, uh, the Toronto podcast. So um, trailers first. And I want to start um, at, I, I was going to say start small and get to the biggest one, but you're not starting pretty small when you start with Mary Poppins returns. And my reaction to this is different from Kevin's. It, like I watched this and I thought this thing is going to be a behemoth, like at Christmas. I just, it feels like it's going to be a crowd pleaser that all generations are going to dial into. I could see older Disney fans who love the original checking it out. Like once they saw, you know, that trailer was kind of peppered with Angela Lansbury, Dick Van Dyke, Meryl Streep. Like I, I could see my, my mom seeing that trailer and be like, Oh, I'm going to buy a ticket to that right now. And I never go to the movies versus, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda and Emily Blunt and, and capturing the nostalgia of that first movie. I, when you counter program it with something like Aquaman and the animated Spider-Man movie and Bumblebee, um, which are kind of, you know, it's weird to call them niche, but they're going after sort of the genre audience. Mary Poppins looks to me like that, that typical four quadrant blockbuster that's going to crush. But Kevin, you were a little bit meh on it. You said, no, no, well, here's the thing. Like when you're comparing it to the Aquaman trailer that, uh, and then regard, yeah, it is a amazing trailer compared to the Aquaman trailer. But again, we all know trailers can be deceiving. Um, I just wasn't Mission blown away. Mission to board. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> still yeah. my favorite line. Yeah, um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I mean, but <laughs> I, think the, I think the Mary Poppins trailer is fine. I, mm. Nothing in that trailer made me, like, stand up and go, man, I really got to see that. I mean, listen, I love Lin-Manuel Miranda. I think I saw him on Hamilton Broadway. I, I loved his work in Moana. Um, I think Emily Blunt is one of my favorite actresses working today. Uh, Dick Van Dyke was in the trailer. I mean, listen, there. Uh, there is a lot in the trailer that I liked. I just watched it, and when it ended, I said, "Cool, looks fine." I mean, I, I mean, there was no, there was no like negativity in regards. To, I didn't go, "Man, that looks terrible." I mean, I, I mean, the, I love the shot of her coming down. I love her walking into the house. I love, you know, I love that shot of her looking herself in the mirror, and then the, she yeah. stays in the mirror and then walks away. There's, there's, there's good stuff in there. I just wasn't floored. By the trailer, I, I but I'm gonna see it, and I, and I bet, and I guarantee you, it's gonna be good considering the cast and who's involved. Uh, I just, uh, just, I don't know, Jake. Did you love it, or did, were you just kind of like, eh? Here, here's what I'll say. So I, I'll preface it by saying I am a sucker for what people now refer to as nostalgia porn, like sure. you know Disney sort of tapping into your childhood and trying to make you feel like a kid again. When the Christopher Robin trailer came out, I was sold. Mm-hmm. What struck me as interesting about the Mary Poppins trailer is that Mary Poppins obviously long before my time, wasn't a super big part of my childhood. So it wasn't really a movie I super grew up with. So it gave me this new sensation of like, 
oh, cool. Like, I'm excited about something that wasn't really a big... Like, it's not nostalgia porn, because I'm not nostalgic for Mary Poppins, but the 2D animation and, and seeing Dick Van Dyke back on the screen again, like, it gave me this sort of, like, new sensation of, like, kind of wanting to chase this feeling of something new that I haven't discovered before. So it's a sequel to a movie that's been around for decades, but it's making me feel like I'm getting something that I've never gotten before. So in yeah. that sense, I was very much intrigued, because it found this really sweet spot of... Uh, of both reminiscing what I knew was somewhere kind of, I guess, a part of my childhood, but also something that very much wasn't. Right. Well, and but, did, but did, Poppins... did, you, did you love the trailer? I thought, yeah, honestly, I thought it was a great trailer. I thought okay. it was a very, very, very well done trailer. I thought it was a good trailer. I didn't, I didn't think it was great. What Mary Poppins did too, because um, it is one that I sort of grew up on and watched a ton, and especially once we had kids, it was one that we sort of brought back often to them, um, is that the ta- Dick Van Dyke and, and Julie Andrews, their talent is like uncool questionable like oh, yeah. it has these huge musical numbers great big song and dance it dials into when a musical is clicking on all cylinders and it just has this energy to it and so jake i think you're right the nostalgia will lure some people in but then i think like the talent of lin-manuel miranda yeah. and of yeah. emily blunt is what people are going to come out saying like oh my god like those two were just fantastic is, is he not and no knock to to miranda because i literally have a picture of him in myself framed on my wall in my apartment <laughs> is lin-manuel and miranda is he like really a box office draw like is that someone that's going to get people to um, go to the movies no but when i went to moana and i think the first time i saw moana i wasn't even sure no i must have known he did the music i must have known he did the music you would have known that songs, you're very smart john i can't the imagine songs you songs blew me away like they yeah. were so yeah. incredible and if he wrote the original music for this i'm i'm way on board for that am i the only one uh at the end of the trailer when she like flies back into that into that bathtub that immediately went to the scene in in quiet place i don't know why i, oh, just, I didn't like, even think about ju- that. I, just, I just jumped <laughs> and then it's funny because after i thought that i saw a tweet um a couple of hours later where somebody did a side-by-side of the shot at the end of mary poppins returns trailer and then the shot of I guess there's a bathroom or a bathtub shot in the new girl with the dragon tattoo movie where she like jumps into a bathtub or something like that. And I was like, there was something about bathtub themes going on or something like that with cinema. But the first thing I thought about was, um, was quiet place. I thought it was a train spotting reference. If you and McGregor climbing into the toilet. Oh, I figured now, that was Rob Marshall's train spotting. Could you imagine if they threw a train spotting <laughs> reference and like well, one of the most disgusting scenes in the history of cinema? Uh, I want Rob I'm, Marshall to come out and I say remember, literally, "Yeah, that was my train spotting nod." I'm glad you picked up on it. I can't remember who I. Uh, it was either yeah. Danny. Bo- it was either Danny. I think it was Danny Boyle. I asked Danny Boyle at the Steve Jobs junket how they did that shot. It's really crazy because obviously he's not diving into it, but the perspective of it. It's so hardly horrifyingly disgusting. That toilet. I'll never <laughs> forget it for the day for the rest of my life. Um, Michael oh. Reyes asks in chat on the Facebook Live, "Who wins the box office, Mary Poppins or Aquaman?" Mary Poppins, without question. Ooh, I think Aquaman wins it. No, I think Mary Aquaman Poppins. like not even close. Mary Poppins. I think Aquaman has the IMAX 3D. I think that it's. I don't know. I don't think it has anyone that wants to go see it in IMAX 3D. I don't think it has anyone that wants to go see it. Period. Listen, I think Mary Poppins will make more money than Aquaman in the end. That's but, okay. That's the question. But that's, but, the, that's no, no. He's talking about opening weekend, right? He's talking about, you wait, talking about opening oh, weekend. Oh well, he just says who wins the box office. I, I kind of oh. took it as total. Total. Oh, total. I think Mary Poppins. I think opening weekend, but. Here's what's interesting. We all can sit here right now and, and think Aquaman's not going to do well, uh, or in regards that won't do as great as, we, as, as they hope. But prior to the tracking that came out recently of Venom, 
How much did you think Venom would make opening weekend? Twenty million. Forty. Okay, the thing is tracking at sixty. That's apparently. crazy. Yeah, but I mean, Solo was tracking at one eighty, so we'll sure. We'll see. But but what I find interesting is I was shocked that Venom had that any that that type of tracking whatsoever, uh, and also. I actually didn't realize this, that Starsborn is opening up the same weekend as Venom. Yes, it is. Fascinating to me. But do you guys remember back when, like, Rogan, Seth Rogan would release those R-rated comedies against big movies? They would still make 30, 35 million. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I think Starsborn is that R-rated. Yeah, it's that R-rated counter-programming, which is going to be, that movie will be very leggy, obviously. It'll have a lot of legs. Um, But I think that... I think that's completely interesting that while Star is going to come out the same weekend as Venom, it won't open number one, but that's, that's not a problem. That's not a big deal. Um, because I think that it's an interesting, it'll still make a ton of money, but I think that number one box office thing is something that studios want. They want to boast that in their, in their, in their trailers and their ads the next week for the second weekend release. So I thought that was interesting that they were opening on that same weekend, but I don't know. The Coen brothers have a trailer for their movie, uh, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. And I want to bring this up specifically because I refused to watch it and I made the guys watch it instead. <laughs> so I can, I can ask them questions about it, mainly because, and then Jake, of course, countered with this beautifully. I said, I don't want to watch this trailer because I already know I'm going to go see it. And I don't want to, I want to go in as unspoiled as I possibly can. And then he called me out on the carpet for watching the Captain Marvel trailer about a hundred times, even though I'm, I'm in the tank for that one too. But I just when a, with a Coen Brothers movie, they're so rare that when they come around, I don't want to, the marketing to kind of ruin it. And so did the trailer work for you guys? Did it sell you as if you need to be sold on a Coen Brothers movie? Did it in, make you more intrigued for the Ballad of Buster Scruggs? Uh, yeah, it definitely intrigued me. The style of it, the cast, uh, there's a weird uh, a, uh, a weirdness to it. Uh, that that I wasn't expecting, but should I guess whenever whenever it comes to a Coen Brothers movie, um, it it I I think Kevin would agree with this. It whenever it was done, it left me going, wait, what it what is it about? What is it right. exactly? Okay. But because of that, like I I'm super into it. I I don't really need to know what the like. I very much am sold, like you. Is it um, a but, burn but after a cool reading look. vibe? Is it a no, yeah? I got Vibe. No, wow. so I no. I say it looks like True Mix. Grit, but gives me yeah. a burn after reading vibe. Yeah, it's where there's like, like these yeah. really like like eccentric characters mixed different storylines that are crossing over in threads. Like True Grit is a very simple through line A to B to C to D. Okay, there's nothing like that in this. This I get. Yes, it looks like True Grit, but it's a it's a burn after reading vibe for sure. Yeah, Jake's right. They're mix. It's like they're mixing their like their their quirky comedy style with their western style. But Netflix when they in the trailer. They only build them as from the directors of No Country for Old Men and True Grit, That's uh, because it, because it looks like a western. Um, I, Deacons is not shooting this, which is interesting. Uh, I don't fully know what the storyline is based on the trailer, and again, that's a part of the intrigue, as Jake was saying. Um, again, my argument a million times over on this whole thing is: I hope they give it a theatrical run first. Yeah, it better it better go to the theaters first. So should Roma. So should all these movies? Okay, here's the Netflix, question: An Irish say man. they don't. What are you gonna do? Are you gonna? Well, it's, not, just... it's, not, it's, not, it's not like I'm gonna do anything about it. I, 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 I know, just... but like, no, I mean that in the sense that like, what's what is best case scenario? Like, do you, do you like turn off all the lights in your living room and try to try to replicate it best you can? 
No, I think I, they'll, they'll screen it, right? They screen Mudbound for us. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. I think that we've already established that a movie has to have a theatrical run at least in one, you know, New York or L.A., right, for a week in order to be... Isn't, isn't that what Tommy Wiseau did for The Room? He just kind of yes. put his movie yeah. out for a week or whatever. So yes. I think you have to have the movie out for a week. So I just... Okay. I'm, uh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm very well, much in... I'm sorry, Kevin, go ahead. No, I'm just very much in favor of a movie, especially a Coen Brothers movie that's shot no, I gorgeous, agree. gorgeously is the way it is. And, and I'm hearing from a lot of people who've seen Roma, which I haven't seen yet, and I love Alfonso Cuaron, um, that it needs to be seen in a theater. And yes. I, I am, I'm very concerned about audiences watching it first on Netflix. Here's the thing. I love Netflix. I am all for Netflix giving platforms to filmmakers. I am all for them making movies. But my opinion is that you put your movie out for a week, maybe a week, just give it a week in theaters, then put it on your streaming service. Because I feel like the like a film like Roma, uh, and I haven't seen it, but I've heard it's gorgeous. Uh, and I, I can't imagine Alfonso Cuaron wants someone watching that on their iPad the first weekend. I, I just don't, we, I don't know. When we started Awards Blend, this was a very heated topic for us about Netflix, you know, day and date on their streaming and in theaters. That conversation has changed just in the year that we started this podcast in that um, Roma is going to theaters. I don't know the Good. specific rollout plan, but I know it's going to theaters and I'm looking at the Buster Scruggs website. It's their Wikipedia, but it says scheduled to be released November 16th on Netflix after a theatrical run. Good. So, See, all right. So that's great like, news. Right. But that's like, that's how fluid this conversation is. Great. Is that Netflix, um, which it, it, it has every right to feel that, Hey, if we gave you the money to make this movie, it should come exclusively to our platform. Because that's yeah. the draw of signing up a subscriber to Netflix is you can only get this movie here. So come get it here. But they're they're loosening their grip on that and letting these movies go to theaters. And when you start working with filmmakers, so just in this frame alone, you're talking about the Coen brothers, Alfonso Cuaron, and Paul Greengrass has 22 and Scorsese. And, well, and Scorsese. Yeah. And Michael Bay's making one right now with Ryan Reynolds. I mean, here's the thing. These are all filmmakers that need that uh, that are that work so well on the big screen. Michael Bay works great on the big screen. Yeah. So does Alfonso Cuaron. So could you imagine? I mean, I want you guys to hypothetically sit here with me for a second. Imagine if we were sitting here today and Gravity was coming out on Netflix only. <laughs> yeah. Okay? Right. So Netflix makes Gravity and they release it on on Netflix only. What do you feel about that? I'd be horrified. Okay, so I guess my point being here's the thing. If here's the thing, maybe there's a compromise here, right? Maybe maybe what they do is with Buster Scruggs and Irishman and uh and film and maybe like Six Underground and, and whatever other movies we're referring to here, Roma, maybe you put it out the same. I still don't think it should be the same day. I think the theatrical run should be about a week, maybe early, then put it on Netflix. But maybe if the compromise has to be where it goes in theaters and the streaming service at the same time, while I don't agree with that, I, I, it would, I would feel better about the idea that people have the option to go to a theater. Yeah. Um, so I think that, that listen, I, I have very hardened feelings on this and, and, and I get a bit emotional about it because I'm a big theater guy, but I understand the times we're in, and I understand, and I love Netflix for giving filmmakers opportunities to do things. But when you're bringing in big guys like that, big people like that, big filmmakers, women or men, whatever, whatever give them a theater option uh, mm-hmm. for people. I mean, I want to see Roman on the big screen. I'm sorry. I don't want to watch it on my home TV yet. I'm not, I mean, I'll watch it at home later on, but I want to watch it at home. I want to, I want to watch it on the big screen. Let's get to the big trailer this week, which was... Uh... Today, Captain Marvel, uh, the first Marvel movie of 2019, the first one to come uh, post-Infinity War, and yet it's set in the 1990s. 
It will have threads that connect the current story because we believe that Captain Marvel will be really important to Avengers 4. Uh, I already said to Jake before the show started, I probably watched this 20 times uh, before the show started. We've done breakdowns. Are on you sold yet after they, after watching it 20 I times? You finally probably, sold? I guess I'll go see it. Uh, this should be fun. No, you know what really I got caught up in today? Uh, and this was the theme for Captain Marvel before this, of the first female-led um, solo Marvel movie. And at the time, I was like, you know, I don't know if that's really necessarily fair because there are that short changes a little bit to me what Scarlett Johansson and Elizabeth Olsen and um, you know actresses have done in this in these movies. But I but today the way and it was that transition from you know her to a hero, um, and I was like, oh, you know what? I do actually totally understand that this is a this is a focused solely on a female lead. And um, I probably I should have picked up on that a lot earlier. And it's not shortchanging necessarily what these women have done in the MCU prior to this. This is a big deal. Uh, and to then to see Brie Larson was a hero on Twitter all day today, just um, reacting to everybody reacting to her trailer. She uses social in a fantastic way to keep uh, the positive vibes going. Um, what did you guys think of the trailer? Uh, again, not that we need to be sold on Captain Marvel necessarily, but do you think it looks like something different from the MCU? I think it sort of lines up with everything. I really dig the the vibe of the 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a compliment to Kevin, the first thing I saw of, thought of whenever <laughs> I saw a blockbuster was like, I just imagined Kevin like running out and being like, what the hell was that? Um, but I, I love that we're going to, hopefully that will shake things up a little bit. Uh, I'm a big Brie Larson fan. She looks like she's fantastic in the role. To be fair, like I am not familiar with that character at all. So I am. I feel like I'm not quite in the right place to say whether it looks right or not. But it looks fun. It made me want to see it. I think it fits perfectly in line, sort of with, other, with the other Marvel movies. And it's if it's the appetizer before Avengers four, then bring it on. Yeah, I mean, I think the trailer was cool. I I, I was talking to my wife about it. Um, I wasn't blown away by it, but it was a good trailer. Mm-hmm. Um, the editing was great. The music was great. The blockbuster thing was awesome. That was, that made me really happy. That was the best part of the trailer. Um, one of the things I found interesting, and I think Sean, you're, I saw you retweet this first and then I saw it end up as a gif again. There's this really cool, these really cool edits of like her younger uh, and, and getting older and becoming the hero. And he's like quick, quick cuts, um, that are really well done. And then there's that close up of her hand kind of clinching, um, but my wife and someone else pointed this out too that 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 it's very similar to an edit apparently that happened at the end of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. There's a oh. um, in the in the series finale. There's a similar and I guess a lot of people were catching on to the the choppiness of the way the way it was cut. Um, I mean, there's some listen. I thought the de aging of Sam Jackson looked amazing. I, I was very impressed by that. Uh, it's a cool trailer for sure. I, I don't nothing in there like blew my mind. But again, we are coming off the heels of Infinity War, so it's kind of. Uh, it, 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 you're dealing with, um, you know, that that's kind of where our minds are right now. Like, we want to know what the heck's going to happen in the next MCU phase, but this is taking place prior to that. So it's a bit of an interesting thing that we're going to go backwards. Um, but I think it's going to be fascinating to see, and I'm assuming that they're going to catch up to Infinity War somehow at the end of this movie with a, with a, with a stinger or something. I don't know well, what they're going to do. I think it but, has to explain where she's been this whole time. Right, since we've had right. so many, especially the Battle of New York in the first Avengers movie, if Nick Fury doesn't call her during that right and right. you have to sort of explain why hasn't she been called when ultron was about to tear the planet in half that's or... a great point yeah, that's a great you're point. right think yeah, about that. yeah yeah at the end of infinity war that call that that pager drops down and he's calling captain marvel 
You're yeah. so right, though. Like, I, I, maybe the, maybe you're right. Maybe maybe they'll explain in, in the in the movie that maybe she wanted to take a break from all this, or yeah. she just wanted to be, or maybe she was dealing with something horrible and she had to. And he maybe she. I bet I bet you a million dollars is gonna be a scene. Or someone at Marvel right now is listening to this podcast and going, "Holy crap, <laughs> we've got to go reshoot." But to point we out, got like, messed up. To give Sean credit, though, now I'm like my mind's racing. I bet you there's gonna be a scene in the movie where she says to Sam Jackson, "Listen, I I need to get out of this. Only message me if you ever truly need me." Or what? I, I don't. I don't. I have no yeah. idea. Because then, I mean? then it would give more weight to him calling her at the end of Infinity Infinity War. War. Right. Yes. Or she uh, Sean, be... do you know enough about the character to give me like I, I know I don't want to take up too much time, but to give me like an elevator pitch? I'll give you a really quick elevator pitch. She was a um, Air Force pilot. Uh, who encounters, uh, so there's a, a space race, a space, a race of space aliens, not space race. That's first man. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, called the Cree. And she gets, um, there's an explosion of Cree technology that, that infuses her with uh, Cree powers. So she's half human, half alien. And so most of her adventures take place in, in cosmic realms. And the way that this movie is going to start we're not going to get a true origin in that when the movie begins, she'll already be um, a Cree fighting in space alongside this group called the Star Force. And there's a bunch of the characters from that. And the Cree fight the Skrulls and the Skrulls can. And this is what I find really interesting for what they can do in the MCU. The Skrulls can look like anybody. They're supposed to be able to uh, just mimic uh, Hence different her personalities. punching an old lady. Hence her punching an old lady. So there has been some theory that Marvel might... Uh, have a scroll that's been planted like in the Avengers cast from oh, the beginning. Ooh. And that, you know, as part of the Captain Marvel and her joining Avengers four, she's going to out somebody who's been a scroll this entire time. Ooh. Are, are we, are we led to believe that she's Possible. the, uh, that the Captain Marvel is the one who can stop Thanos? Is well, that kind of where we're headed? She is going to be the strongest character in the MCU. Like for, for all her different powers wow. and even just her brute strength. She will be the strongest. So, so we've, I think we had this conversation on one of the earlier podcasts that there's another infinity gauntlet out there. It's on the Peter Dinklage planet. And that, um, Thanos was the only one strong enough to wield it, but Captain Marvel would be the only one on the hero side strong enough. Like if Captain America put on the infinity gauntlet, it would probably kill him, but Captain Marvel could probably wield the infinity gauntlet. Two things, uh, and Gabe, make a note of this if you can. We one day we need to do like an MCU blend and like yes. break down our favorite scene in an MCU yes. film all together, or maybe a favorite MCU film all together. Yes. I think that'd be cool. Um, but so one other question, and forgive me if I'm bringing up a question that we don't really know how to answer. But my anchor today was telling me, and I didn't know this, and I think I've asked this before on the podcast. I still don't really fully understand it. What is the what is the DC Comics Captain Marvel? I'm confused by that. Um, the Shazam, the character of Shazam actually went by the name Captain Marvel. Okay. So, and and is there going to be any reference to Captain Marvel in Shazam? Like in the sense that he is Captain Marvel? I don't think so. And I think primarily because DC knows that there's a Captain Marvel movie coming (laughs) and that would just create such a headache. What is there like a a moment in the comics where he goes, I'm, I'm just going to go by Shazam and not Captain Marvel. It's such an interesting, how how would even Captain Marvel have made its way name wise into the DC comic universe? That I do not. So interesting for that. People need to go to Hero Blend, which is another podcast on the Cinema Blend Podcast Network. 
Because that by one I do not know. Hosted Eric, by Eric Eisenberg. Eric Eisenberg, by the way. Eric Eisenberg. I, I owe him an apology because oh. when we were, we were in Vegas, I think the entire day I was calling him Eric Davis, uh, who's our buddy from <laughs> Fandango. Um, and I know his name is Eisenberg because I follow him on Twitter and we're Facebook friends and I've known him for years. But uh, Eric, if you're listening, I apologize. There you uh, go. And I, enjoy, I enjoyed our Queen See, so you've done together. ticked him off so much that he's definitely not listening. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, let's jump ahead to Halloween uh, because you guys were able to fly out to LA and interview the cast of Halloween. Jake finally got to. So Kevin and I touched on it briefly in Toronto because we attended the world premiere. Uh, oh, and wait a second, we have we made it this far into the episode and have not mentioned the fact that this amazing woman made this name drop chart for us oh, in yeah. the Toronto oh, yes. episode. Yes. Um, Kimberly, who like, give, is give Kimberly. from Oregon. Yeah, we, on, in the Toronto episode, uh, where we mentioned the Halloween world premiere, we reached this staggering level of name drops, <laughs> uh, even by the three of our standards, um, which is embarrassingly grotesque, <laughs> and said, if anyone's listening to this entire episode, uh, of which we would have been surprised if you did, <laughs> that you made the, made the whole thing, and can count the number of name drops that we had, uh, please send us the, the total, and then we'll try to get you something really nice. And this amazing uh, listener, Kimberly, sent us a Google spreadsheet, and it was like two different columns. So she's a teacher, of course. <laughs> And two different <laughs> columns of um, name drops that implied that we actually met the people versus uh, other name drops where it was just uh, people who were mentioned in conversation. And we topped 30 something uh, in each of the different charts. And Jake also was a name drop uh, because he's specifically asked that he be. Uh, I believe it was, was Jake mentioned. E that was. So, yes. <laughs> so we want to thank Kimberly very much. And I yeah, told her to keep cool. an eye on her mailbox because something something cool is coming. Not a cake. Uh, mind you, but it's a, it's a signed eight by 10 headshot of me. <laughs> really nice is coming. So Jake, you have now seen Halloween. Give yeah. us your uh, quick reaction to it. Uh, liked it quite a bit, actually. And and like it more, the more I think about it, a few little hangups I have um, a mm-hmm. few little things that, that sort of keep it from maybe crossing that threshold into like, Holy crap, this is a game changer. That being mm-hmm. said, uh, a really worthy sequel to mm-hmm. Halloween uh, probably feels the truest to Carpenter's original. Yep. Um, not saying much, but by far the best sequel. Yeah. Uh, and, and some really, truly strong moments that both harken back to 1978, but then also are very reflective of where horror is today. Yeah, it's brutal, I mean, for sure. And I, I think Jake and I, without going into it, Jake and I had a discussion after the movie was over about one particular thing that I didn't like about it. And when, once we get once the movie comes out, We'll get into that discussion. Jake knows what I'm referring to. I don't know what that is. And I'll text you about John. But I mean, yeah, I agree with Jake, though. I mean, like, it is, it's a very fun horror film. I mean, it is, and and there's that nostalgia element to it. It's Michael Myers, that mask is coming on, which I find interesting. And I asked David Gordon Green this. um, In our screening in L.A., when Michael puts the mask on for the first time, which uh, I think that scene's in the trailer, uh, but you you, you know Michael puts his mask on. That's not a spoiler. Um, People were cheering and I find that so interesting that people would cheer for a murderer. Um, and uh, but 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 it's interesting. David Gordon Green's answer was uh, just about the idea that listen, this is a movie, and and he seemed even conflicted that people were cheering at that. But the point being is that Michael Myers is like in this hall of fame of monsters in horror movies, you know. Mm. So it's more of a. Um, just more of like a moment for horror fans that the, the character was coming back into but, his own or whatever. You know what's so. interesting? You would get that same reaction. Like there was a period of uh, 80s horror 
where Freddie and Jason and Michael Myers were the yeah. stars of these movies. They were yeah. like, they're the reason that you went to go see those movies. And then horror took a swing to the Eli Roth side where um, the people from Saw or the people from Hostel, like you didn't want to meet the people who were the threats in those movies and meeting them meant real disaster. But like right. if, you, if they run a, a Freddie, a Nightmare on Elm Street movie now, the moment that Freddie put his glove back on would probably get the same types of cheers. You would love I, to see it. I agree with you. And it, it's yeah. an interest, it's an interesting thing. And, uh, but yeah, to Jake's point, I mean, I think it's such a great, it's a great sequel. Um, I love that it's a direct sequel. I love that. Um, and when people see it, they're going to, there's a lot of great fan service moments in regards to um, things that happen that call back to the original that are really fun. Uh, and Carpenter said in my interview that, Everything in this movie is David Gordon Green. Like Carpenter, you know, executive produced it. He does the music for it. Um, but this is this is a fan. Did I tell you guys this at the, uh, in the last podcast? I I, I got confirmation from David Gordon Green about the Jake Gyllenhaal connection. Did I tell you guys this story already? No. Yeah, we so, mentioned it, but so basically, yeah. I mean, like apparently Jake Gyllenhaal um, is the celebrity godson of uh, of uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, and I guess when he was on set making Stronger with David Gordon Green. David Gordon Green like put a put a word out to Jake Gyllenhaal that he was interested in doing a sequel to Halloween. You know, again, I believe so. Jamie Lee Curtis dies in Resurrection, right? And, and right. the whole con she gets, point she gets thrown off a roof. Yeah, the point being that she that that we're gonna bring this character right. back and just completely get rid of everything that happened in between. So apparently, Jake Gyllenhaal called Jamie Lee Curtis, and now we're here. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that unbelievable? Like story. what? That is. What? What a, a! I mean, what the heck? And like David Gordon Green was wearing a, a John Carpenter Halloween shirt at the junket, and I'm just sitting across from the guy going, "Oh my god!" Can, like I can't imagine what this guy is thinking because 20 years prior, he was you know he wasn't making Hollywood films, whatever. He, I didn't. I know he did Pineapple Express and things like that, but but wow! Like imagine being in that chair. It's a kind of a cool. I just love stuff like that. I love stories like that, and. You know, I bet you a million dollars when he mentioned to Joan Hall. I don't think he had any idea that it would ever even come to fruition. You know what I mean? Uh, it's so wild. Arthur Mingo, who's watching on the Facebook page, uh, asks, do I have to watch the first one in order to get this one? I think absolutely. I think you should. Yeah, I think absolutely. you should. Well, there was a guy in our group who's been on the podcast before, Chris Van Vliet. He yeah. told us afterward that he's never seen the original. What? He's still, yeah, but he's still very much like this one. I went back. It had been a few years since I've seen the original Halloween, but I watched it the night before, before I flew out to L.A. And I was glad I did because there are a lot of little nods. Yeah. If you, you know, if you have Some seen it recently. Um, so I, I think you should. I think you're missing out if you don't. Do you absolutely, positively, necessarily have to see it? No. It enhances but the experience. Why, yeah, oh, why totally. wouldn't you? Yeah, it's it's like it's like when you order a steak and you get the mashed potatoes and the mac and cheese on the side. It's like you know those enhance the meal, right? What, J Jake? What's the what's the face? No, I'm just I'm just I'm just curious as to where this is going. No, I was just making a metaphor of like it enhances the whole meal. Like if you just right, had a right. steak on the plate, it would taste good still, right? But if you put mac and cheese and mashed potatoes on the side, it enhances it and makes it a better how experience. A, That's all. How about I'm a saying. vegetable, Kevin? Yeah, or or, or a broccoli, or you know what something about? like. Something um, like that. So the cool thing, uh, uh, you all asked, starches. Yeah, you mentioned our. Uh, He's uh, calling John Carpenter a starch. This is true. Uh, you mentioned the junket. The junket was cool. Um, which was the surreal thing about the junket for me was, um, like I think the day before, I was looking at Instagram and Jamie Lee Curtis had posted. Actually, I saw the day of the. I saw it the day before. She posted a photo of herself in front of the in front of the Psycho House, um, which is on the Universal lot. And it, that's the moment it struck me that we were going to interview Jamie Lee Curtis 
on the same property That's where awesome. Psycho House exists. And yeah. I, I was thinking to myself, oh my God, like this, Jamie Lee Curtis and, J- and Janet Lee are in two of the most iconic horror films of all time. Yes. We're interviewing Jamie Lee Curtis on Wisteria Lane on the Universal back lot, and right up the street from us is the Psycho House. <laughs> and, and I'm like, we're just like, I'm just like sitting here having a conversation with Jamie Lee Curtis about her mom and about Psycho. And it was just like, it was kind of mind blowing. Uh, because I, I'm so happy I saw that photo because I actually didn't connect the dots right. that we were on the same land where Psycho House was until I saw that photo. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. But yeah, I mean, Jake can talk about that as well. We were, uh, it was a very cool night michael myers is walking behind us um it was it was surreal it was a really it was a really cool moment yeah you know they they blocked off you know wisteria lane where they shot desperate housewives and years before shot uh the monsters i guess i guess one of those houses was the monster house yeah and they did it to look like haddonfield illinois and you know if you've ever been on the back lot of a set it doesn't take much imagination to really feel like you're immersed. I mean, like, we're talking, like, that's how good these sets are. You could walk into these houses, and they're legit full-blown houses. Some of them even have working bathrooms in there where you can walk inside. And I think my favorite part was they hire this guy, this actor, (laughs) to play Michael Myers and essentially walk up and down the street. Naturally... What do you want? I want to get a picture with a guy. Like, you know, it's, it's, it, you, you, it looks like we're in Haddonfield, Illinois, and, and it's a, an amazing costume. It's not like some, some crap, ha- you know, like, no pun, it's in a Halloween costume. Like, it's a, like a legit, like, looks like it came from the movie. That being said, he would not stop to take a picture. What? He would not respond. So Holy, I would be like, I'd be like, I'd be like, hey, man, like, can you, like, like stop for two seconds so I get a picture? And he would walk around me. <laughs> I asked Universal. Can you get the guy to stop so I can take a picture? Universal goes over to him and says, hey, stop for a second so this guy can take a picture with you. He keeps walking. And not only does he keep walking, he stops 20 yards away, turns around, looks at us, and then keeps walking again. So apparently he had a handler on the set that you had to go to the handler, and the handler had to go to him and say, dude, seriously, stop for a second and take a picture. It was it got to a point where, like, it wasn't even so much that I really wanted the picture as much as it was a challenge of, like, screw you, dude. I am getting my picture with you. You're going to stop, and I'm going to take my photo. And I actually ended up getting one. Uh, we put him, in like, up on a porch and put me down. It looked like he was going to, like, come behind me and kill me. Um, so it was great. Uh, yeah, so, go to Jake's, Jake's Instagram. Twitter, yeah, yeah, it's cool. Twitter, so yeah. I've got that. I've got a picture uh, with Freddie, uh, uh, Robert England and the Freddie makeup. And then I've got a picture uh, with Jason. So I've got, like, my, my 80s monster pictures. Uh, complete, awesome. which I'm feeling pretty really good about. And That's to awesome. give a little behind the scenes, because this, this stuff is so cool. Like Jake and I have been doing junkets and Sean as well for many, many years. But um, Universal is very cool about like doing settings. Like we're going to NASA for First Man, but so we get on the lot and Jake and I are just sitting there. And I'm not kidding you. Jamie Lee Curtis walks right by us to go do a to go do a uh, a, a, um, a roundtable interview. And then John Carpenter's just sitting right in front of us, and no one's talking to him. And I and I, and I looked at the Universal person. I was like, "Oh my god, can I go get a photo with him?" And he's like, "Yeah, I, you know, right now, not right now. Wait till uh, the interview and do it there." And then I found out later on, John Carpenter was like, "Why isn't anyone talking to me?" <laughs> and he was just like standing there, uh, just nervous. It's a question out. I often asked in high school. Yeah, but it, <laughs> but it, it was it was pretty surreal though. I mean, like we're on this uh, the same spot, and you know, forty years later, and you know. I brought, I brought my William Shatner mask with me that, uh, that they turned into Michael Myers mask. So I had a cool moment with Jason Blum where Blum didn't know the full story behind the Shatner mask becoming the Michael Myers mask. And I was nervous because I pulled the mask out and I could see John Carpenter going, okay, 
here we go again with the story because it's been a story that he's probably been telling for 40 years that they you know that the set the costume designer had to go out to a party store and buy the William Shatner mask for like two dollars uh which then became the Michael Myers mask but Jason Blum saved that moment for me because Blum wasn't really too familiar with the full story so uh, uh Carpenter literally like was touching the mask and explaining to where Blum where they changed it to become the Michael Myers mask. Uh, and he and, and the, he said the best thing, he said, this mask looks nothing like William Shatner. It's just a really scary mask. And, I, and that's kind of how it became that. So it was just a bit of a... And then, like, Carpenter was doing the theme music. It was just a weird... It was a weird moment for all of us, I think. It was, it was just very really cool. cool. It was a very yeah. cool junket moment, though. Every once in a while, they get yeah. outside of the, uh, the Four Seasons, you know, hotel room corridor, and they let you do something really amazing like that, including this next one, as I transition beautifully to... First Man, because the boys are going down to NASA to interview the cast of First Man. And when we spoke about it the last time, I was the only one who has seen it. Kevin has now caught up with it. Jake still has not. Jake, you're going to see it at the junket, I would assume? Yeah, I'll see it at the junket, yeah. Kevin, uh, and this is why I think people listen to us, um, because we don't, we're not just this rah-rah agree. Everybody says the same thing all the time. Fight, Kevin loves First Man, and I want him to be able to talk a bit about, and, and so, strangely, I have become the driver of the why do you hate first man sean wagon because <laughs> why do you hate damon chazelle why do you hate cinema that is a snap reaction to yeah everything that happens on the <laughs> internet i came back and said first man was fine but i had some issues with it kevin um i want you to weigh in uh briefly because again we have to remind ourselves that people haven't seen this movie yet right and it's coming including me soon including jake yeah. um but you how do we how do we talk about it then specifically no, without I'll, really I, i'm just gonna say i love the movie um yeah. and uh i wanted to say two things one um all that flag controversy ridiculous just stop with that okay so because st- the flag is on the moon it's in two massive imax shots yeah. um and i haven't uh uh unfortunately i did not see the film in imax yet i know that those scenes that i saw it in were in imax because my wife saw it at the cinesphere where you saw it sean um, I think the movie is an incredible achievement because not technically speaking, because that that's a whole nother realm, but I think a lot of people and myself included are very ignorant to the fact that there's these larger than life people who have done great things that we just look at as a larger than life superhero type person. Neil Armstrong in my mind was always this guy who landed on the moon. The first guy who went walked on the moon for the first time. That's all I knew about him. Um, for Damien Chazelle to humanize this guy, literally cutting back and forth between the Claire Foy storyline, which is his wife in the film, and that story, I thought was just an astounding way to tell that story because this is just a normal guy. I mean, it was a normal guy who was, a, was an American uh, family man who had kids, who worked a job that just happened to make him the first man that landed on the moon and walked on the moon. And I think it's incredible that Chazelle is able to keep a, a pacing going where you're learning both sides of it and the intercutting of him at home and then in the training. Um, and Sean, you and I discussed this briefly, but this footage has been out there for a while. The, the trailer that aired before Mission Impossible Fallout um, was one, one, one of the test missions that went up prior to the actual moon landing sequence. Um, it's completely all done with like a shaky camera, super 16 millimeter camera work. But and Sean, I think you didn't like that aspect. I thought it was so brilliant that Chazelle just kept you in the cockpit. 
the entire time. Your perspective yes. is looking out of a window like them. The easy thing to do as a filmmaker would be to step outside of the cockpit and shoot the aircraft. Why do that? Why not give us their perspective? So again, not going to go into it much more, but I think it's an astounding film. Just for, uh, just for filmmaking, score. Justin Hurwitz's score is brilliant. Um, I cannot wait to see it open up on IMAX. And Sean, correct me if I'm wrong, and I have not seen the IMAX version. Does it open as he walks onto the moon? Is that how it, is that? Okay, yeah. I can't wait to see that. So yeah. um, he shot 65 mil IMAX, just like Nolan did with like Dunkirk and Interstellar and Dark Knight. Um, so it's going to be very, very cool to see that in IMAX, but Jake and I are going to the junket. I just wanted to say that I loved it because I know Sean and I were, uh, had a debate about it. Sean didn't hate the movie. He actually liked the film a lot. He just didn't so love Sean, it. So Sean, why do you hate puppies? Yeah, I just, they're, they're too cute and annoying. Um, my, Kevin, my, my only comment about the inside the cockpit shaking, uh, thing is that I think he overuses it because he uses it in like four or five sequences. But that's what it was there's like. There's a bunch of training missions leading up to it. No, I get it, but I, it loses its impact to me. Oh, I the time you Every time he keep, every time he used it, it, it felt a little bit less effective. I was like, okay, I get it. I get that this is what it is. But I feel like the easy route a filmmaker could go would be to take the wide shot of the aircraft lifting off and, and not, and sure. just give us, or cut back and forth. I think that takes you out of the scene. I, I, I think that actually makes it more of a well, movie. Why not, think, be, why not be in there with Armstrong and see what he's seeing? I mean, that, the footage that they showed before Mission Impossible Fallout had this exact moment that Sean and I are referring to. And it's just unreal. Like, like you are in there. Like, and your, your eyesight is like all over the place. And all you have is a window. A small little window to tell you where you are while it's burning up or if it's whatever it's doing. It's awesome. I was so in, 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 I was so into it. I loved it. In the Toronto podcast, I um, you guys brought up a where does a star is born? A movie that we raved about um, rank in your uh, list of best movies of the year. You guys both said Star is Born is your number one. Kevin has First Man knocked it off its perch. Well, no, 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 no. Uh, my number one right now is Ready Player One and Star is Born. Now, Jake and I discussed this, um, and he made me change my mind on this. Uh, I was, in the moment, I have them both tied as number one, Ready Player One and a Star is Born. Um, at the end of the year, I'm going to have to make a decision where I put one and yes. two. I have not I'm made standing that. by that also. You have to okay. pick one. Well, I have made okay, that here, decision. Here's, here's what I'll say. Wait, wait, wait. If they're both nominated for Best Picture, which one would you vote for? Ready Player One. Okay. So where does First Man fall? First Man on my top five of the year right now. Uh, am I, am, Jake, am I skipping two because I have two tied at one for the yes. moment? Okay. Yes. So you have ready, a two. Ready. You just don't know which one it is yet. So Ready Player One, Star is Born, are my number one and number two at the moment. I don't know where they're falling. Um, I'd probably go number three. Wow. All right. And then, if, and then, and then Infinity War and then Deadpool 2. There's no way it's a better movie than Infinity War, but we will we'll have plenty of time to discuss that as we get into uh, a return to awards blind. Uh, before we, oh, we have two, so many other topics we have to get to, talk about life itself. Do people need to go see it this weekend? If only just to understand, I don't understand the, the, the hatred of this movie. I actually, I mean, like, we're not talking about, like, a movie getting bad reviews. We're talking about a movie at the Toronto Film Festival that got some of the worst reviews I've ever seen in my entire life. Right. I thought it was good. I thought it was good. Yeah, Jake okay. and I were having a problem with that. Like we, we, because we saw the film and everyone that walked up to us afterwards was like, it wasn't that the movie was bad. It was, I hated this film. Like it was hated, yeah. hated, yeah, hated it. It was such an interesting reaction because the word hate is such a powerful word. And I don't, my mom always told me not to use it. I try not to use it. I, I really don't use that word. 
and there are movies I've disliked very much over the years. But the it was almost as if it was violent, like how much people <laughs> hated it. I mean, Jake, they I mean, really... it was kind of brutal. Yeah, like like to the point where I went out of my way to read reviews to try to understand why people hated it so much. It was reminiscent to me of something like 500 Days of Summer. Not near the quality, not near the quality, but the creative way in which it told this story. Granted, I am a sucker for Dan Fogelman. I love Crazy Stupid Love. I love This Is Us. So I was already halfway in the bag before, you know, the first frame, you know, uh, you know, unfurled before us. But I like that sort of, uh, you know, beat you over the head with your heart sentimentality. But I don't, I don't understand. I just don't. I mean, like, yeah, if someone doesn't, if it's not their cup of tea, okay, it's fine. But I don't understand what there is to hate about this. Well, movie. they're selling it on. Um, it's sort of like this is us. Like, if it's an, people it's like an this R-rated, is us. R-rated, R-rated. This is us. Okay. But, right. I, but it's also told in such a way that's nothing like this is us. I mean, this oh, really? is us sort of jumps in time. But, I mean, there, there's they, they have fun with narration. They have fun. I mean, there are a lot of elements that really made me stop and go, oh, that's kind of like 500 Days of Summer. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Jay, the cool thing about life, life itself is that Fogelman is clearly a, a filmmaking fan um, and, and, and a big Tarantino fan, uh, a huge one. Uh, and in the wow. film, there's, there's all, oh my God, he, he told me, I had a phone with him the other day for 15 minutes. He says his biggest hope is that Tarantino will watch this movie and give him feedback. Because uh, it, 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 the, the movie, if you've seen the trailers, you've seen Oscar Isaac and Olivia Wilde dressing up as Uma Thurman and John Travolta from Pulp Fiction. Um, the movie is very well done. And I don't, I, I, I'm with Jake. I don't understand. Like the, it's, it's all, I, I don't, it's like the venom, it's like, there's like a venom to this movie in regards to the hatred for it. So I, um, I like this film a lot and I, I and I'm interested in pe- the people to see it. It's very rated R. It's R rated for sure. It's like, again, like Jake said, an R rated, this is us. Uh, but the performances are outstanding. And Jake and I were just gushing over how much we love talking to Mandy Patinkin, uh, who was in a great interview, uh, very personal stories they were telling us at this junket. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm for this movie, and I think Jake is too, and I think that uh, we're in the extreme minority, apparently. Interesting. All right, so we'll see how that plays, because we're in sort of these doldrums heading into the end of September, where you have movies like House with a Clock in Its Walls, and life itself and May, is that the worst title for a movie it's terrible it's really I mean, like, i'm seeing like, it tonight and my my son brennan's really excited to see it so i think it's geared towards kids i think they're 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 marketing it to them but that is really tough i mean like 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 take I away don't. the quality of the film i don't know i haven't given it a lot of thought but like sure. that's a horrible title <laughs> a horrible title <laughs> one yeah. thing i will i will give amblin and universal credit for um it's a pg film but it feels like an eli roth movie and i was very impressed that Eli Roth kept his voice in the film because you're dealing with a film that's geared towards children, as you mentioned, Sean. Um, you'll see how twisted it gets. I mean, it's pretty dark in huh, uh, nice. a sense where I was actually really impressed that a major studio uh, with a film like that, which is geared towards kids, bringing in a director who's known for his extreme violence and extreme craziness in movies of Cabin Fever and Hostel and Obviously, with Bastards, the character in Bastards, is, who's awesome, by the way. Um, but I think that uh, I was, I'm interested to see what you think, Sean. When you get out, text me tonight. Uh, Eli Roth's voice is highly in there, very much in there. Like, like this, there's, there's like Sam Raimi references in this film, like the Evil Dead. So wow. I, I, I was interested. And again, I'll get to my review later on of the film. But that I will say I was very impressed by what they did there. I have not, I could not have paid you to give me a better transition than mentioning Sam Raimi and have us dis- discuss 
Spider-Man 2. Uh, and ha- well, you might be listening to this podcast and be like, why are these clowns talking about Spider-Man 2? There's not even a Spider-Man movie in theaters at all. But every once in a while, something will go across the Twitter feed and one of us will weigh in with something and it so thoroughly shocks the others. Like it might just be like, oh, Kill Bill's clearly two movies, right? Or uh, Sam Raimi's a disappoint- made a disappointing Spider-Man movie. And so Kevin That's and I not find Spider-Man ourselves- Man 3. That's not Spider-Man 3, that it's actually Spider-Man 2. And so I had to say on Twitter that I thought, and specifically it was the scene in question that was raised by somebody, which was um, when Spider-Man is fighting Doc Ock on the train and then the train's getting run off the rails and he's got to sit in the front of the train and sort of web all the buildings and stop the train. And in doing so, the pressure like forces him to pass out and he has to rip his mask off again because in all the Sam Raimi movies, he doesn't really like Spider-Man. He just wants Tobey Maguire. So <laughs> Spider-Man's always taking his mask off constantly in those movies to the point that they're never actually really Spider-Man movies. They are Tobey Maguire in half of a Spider-Man <laughs> suit. Um, so he rips you, his mask you, off. You and couldn't give this perspective without him. throwing your opinion in, could you? <laughs> no, like, not at like all. You were, doing, you were doing so great. Like you were setting up the storyline, and then all of a sudden you just cut right to the chase. Like so, this is not, he hates Spider Man. I, I mentioned. That I it was really. A I've been looking forward to this segment. I just wanted. I wish I had popcorn because I genuinely am looking forward to just sitting back and watching so YouTube. I go want. At so, this. And Kevin loves. Kevin thinks this is one of the you in the ranking of all time best superhero this is movies of all time. You think five. Top five? Okay. Best superhero five? Five superhero uh, movies ever? But the, and he's not the... Jake, he's not the only one that says that. Like, there are people who said it is like... Prob- they said it might be one of the best superhero movies ever made, in which case then I started re- returning fire with like rattling off Logan and Batman Begins and the D- Richard Donner's Superman and Infinity War and probably, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy, the first Iron Man. Like, you can go through... There's so many of them now that Dark like Knight. it just... It doesn't, Dark Knight, it doesn't hold its place anymore. So but specifically what I wanted to characterize, and Kevin said it, and he's 100% right. He comes at this movie from the perspective of judging a movie. And I come at it with all the baggage of being a lifelong Spider-Man fan. And I think we right. just view them differently. And, and the only way that I can describe it to you is what Sam Raimi did with Spider-Man from the get-go, from, from day one, is he just made little tweaks um, to the character that annoyed me to no end because they were just out of, they, they just, he just changed who the character is. Um, his webbing, he doesn't create his own web shooters. He doesn't use his own scientific mind to create his own web shooters. His webs just come out of his hands for some reason. There's no reason for it. There's no explanation for it. He takes this classic Gwen Stacy storyline, which is when the green goblin knocking Peter uh, Parker's uh, beloved girlfriend off the bridge and, and she dies in the process and he forces the Mary Jane character into the first movie. And then each of these movies subsequently have been about like, how does Peter save Mary Jane? And whenever Raimi made a tweet like that, I was always like, Oh, that, why, why it's so this is the perspective that I want to put it into for you guys. And I think you can kind of understand it. Let's say that somebody wanted to remake jaws, right? Which would be a terrible idea, right? A really, really bad idea, but they're like, no, we're going to make a jaws movie. And, we know that there's a source material and people love the source material, but we're going to make a Jaws movie. And in this version, it's set on an island and there's a shark terrorizing everybody. But Chief Brody um, isn't afraid of the water. He's like an Olympic swimmer. And <laughs> one of the things he wants to do is like jump off the boat and swim into the water to attack him. Right. You'd be like, oh, gee, what? No, that's not that's not Brody at all. And it's just it's a little tweak. But if someone did that, you'd be like, no, that's wrong. That's kind of wrong. And so in the Spider-Man movies, like Raimi just kept making these little changes. Like in the third one, he makes the Sandman, the guy who killed his uncle Ben, which is just wrong. It's just wrong. It's not 
right at all. And then, so the response is like, yeah, but it's a good movie and you don't have to read the comics. But no, but if you love the comics, yeah. the changes that Raimi makes bug the crap out of me. And so I can never like his movies because they just change the character that much enough that I just, it annoys me. I totally respect that. And then the Jaws comparison is is actually very fascinating to me because you're 100% right. And I, and I texted you this over the text chain. I am not a Spider-Man comic fan. I'm a Spider-Man movie fan. Yeah. Um, I, I And I still mean this to this day. I think Spider-Man 2 is the best Spider-Man movie made out of any Spider-Man movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I liked Homecoming a lot. There are great moments in it. I didn't love Homecoming. I think Tom Holland is the greatest Spider-Man ever to grace the screen in Civil War and Infinity War. Um, I think he's better as Spider-Man in a supporting cast with other characters around, not just... On a, again, I liked Homecoming a lot. It was a lot of fun. But I, but I still think some of the best moments in that film were Peter Parker moments, like in the back of the limo, things like that. Um, Raimi's Spider-Man 2 was... It was amazing. And this is all before a lot of these MCU movies you're referring to, The Dark Knight, things like that. Um... I just loved the way Raimi told the story and the tone he did in Thor Ragnarok, I know. Um, but I, I just, I find it interesting that when I saw that tweet, I was blown away, first of all, to learn that you didn't love Spider-Man 2. Second of all, I love that scene in the movie that you're referring to. I love that moment when the kids say we won't tell anybody. Um, but I now that you give the Jaws perspective of it, I totally understand where you're coming from. Um, which goes into my point that I made a, a, at the festival with Jake as we were walking back from a lot of screenings. You bring your a lot of your own life into these movies. It, it, 100%. It's, it's impossible to not have bias when watching a movie. It's impossible. Uh, it, it, whether or not your day was bad or you like a, a certain director or a film, um, it's not. It's impossible for your mind not to shift in a certain way, especially with your mind, Sean, where you love Spider-Man. Things are going to tick you off. It's going to ruin the film for you. I did not have that baggage with Spider-Man 2. Uh, it was a perfect superhero film, in my opinion. But that's based on my knowing of Spider-Man from the cinematic world. The only other thing I can think of to equate to what you're saying is what Shane Black did with Iron Man 3, with uh, with Sir Ben Kingsley's character. Um, I did not read the comics. So mm-hmm. I liked that twist of what it. happened with him. But anybody who read the comics hated that twist. I so it. I always found it interesting when Iron Man 3 came out that people were so negative on it. And I didn't realize truly that's, that there were so many hardcore fans of these character that that's why it was so upsetting to them. So right. now what you're saying about Jaws, I completely get it. So I, I, I can't be mad at you for not liking Spider-Man 2. I just wish that you liked it as much as I did, but you, it's impossible considering what you, come with, what you come to the movie with. But I also want to tell you about that scene in particular. And this is what I hated about that scene. Because I, I had a notion like it, th- throughout the first Spider-Man and then part of part two, Everybody finds out that he's Peter Parker. Like everyone finds out. He Norman Osborn finds out. Mary Jane finds out. In this movie, um, the, the people on the train find out. When he rips his mask off, just physically speaking, when he rips his mask off, this train is going at 90 miles an hour. It's going off the track. The people think they're going to die. He rips it off because a spark has is caught onto the mask and he has to get it off his face and throws it. How on earth would those people on the train catch that mask? They would never catch that mask. They would never have it. So when when they carry him Jesus-like over their heads (laughs) to the back and lay him down, and then someone's holding the mask, I actually think I did this in the theater. (laughs) Are you kidding me? 
because there's no way that they would even have that. But he, but Raimi had that really horrible scene in the first one <laughs> where in a post 9-11 America where we had to be like, everyone loves New York, even though New York is like, you know, kind of a crappy city. And the people. Hey, 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 um, hey, where they throw the stuff at the goblin and they say, you mess with Spider-Man, you mess with all of us. And it was like, good God, that was so cheesy, that faux New York sentimentality. So, And that scene struck me also uh. of just like, we won't tell your secret Spider-Man. Give me a break. Everyone on that New York train would be like snapping photos of him and putting them on their Instagrams in a heartbeat. I respected your opinion until you trashed New York City. New York City is the greatest city on earth, That's my, in my personal opinion. I do want to say this. The greatest teaser trailer of all time was the Spider-Man tra- uh, teaser. The first the World teaser Trade ever. Center. Which was, I watched it again the other day because I was showing somebody who had never seen it. And for people who don't remember, it was pulled from theaters after 9-11 happened. But he catches the helicopter in between the two towers. And there's that epic, like, shot when it pulls out. And the sun. It was so well done. Um, How did they catch the mask, Kevin? Dude, I I wasn't thinking about it like like you are. I mean, there's... Jake, Jake, Jake's just sitting there uh, uh, sucking snot into his nose. Um, but I'm that, sick. That, that, by the way, for people listening, that's that's the sound you're hearing is Jake's snot. Um, but I got allergies because I'm allergic to BS, and you two are spewing it out like nothing. Here's the thing, dude. I'm okay. I think the snot sound effect is cool. It sounds, it adds to it. But my my point is, uh, I want Jake to weigh in because Jake, right. I think Jake's in the yes. middle of us here. Yeah. Um, here, here's I, yeah. So. My opinion is is sort of unsexy because I, I sort of split the difference, leaning probably more towards Sean than Nothing Kevin. about you is unsexy, Jake. Here, <laughs> thanks, man. Here is why that scene didn't work for me. To me, what would have made that, to me, the reason that scene was supposed to be powerful is because the mask was supposed to be ripped off and it's supposed to be a kid. It's supposed to be these mo- this moment where these New Yorkers look at him and go, holy crap, like, it's a kid. Like, it's a freaking kid. And that's why Tobey Maguire wasn't quite because he's like a thirty-year-old man playing a high school kid, and so I, that's why, like to me, that scene never really worked because it missed the point of that it's supposed to be this tragic, like oh my god, like we're putting so much pressure and so much weight onto the shoulders of this icon, and the icon is a kid. I wonder if like, you could do that doing? exact same scene with Tom Holland, and it would be a little bit it more. It would effective. be it would be so much more effective mm. because that's why Tom Holland is so much better because he captures that he's just a kid. Yeah. And that is sort of, to me, kind of the tragedy behind Spider-Man is that we're putting so much weight on it. Yes. And, and so like him, that, that, that moment in Homecoming where he's screaming for help underneath the yeah. rubble, it tears my, because it's, it's a reminder that like, you know, we forget that, you know, Tony Stark and, 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 uh, and Bruce Banner and all these, like, these are grown men. These, these guys made their decisions. Yeah. Peter Parker is just kind of along for the ride. And when he gets wrapped up in it, you know, it's easy to forget that. Um... I always felt with Raimi's movies that I was watching a Raimi movie first and a Spider-Man movie second. Um, I am not so much... A, I, I'm, a, I'm a Spider-Man fan, but compared to Sean, I would by far say a casual Spider-Man fan, so it never bothered me as much. But Raimi always, and I don't know if selfishly is the right word, but he always put himself first. He always put his style first. He was always going to put his... He was always going to get himself right before he got Spider-Man right. Well, when someone said that one of the best scenes in Amazing Spider-Man 2 is the awakening of Doc Ock, which is a That is such an Evil Raimi. Dead scene. That yeah, is that is such evil a Raimi dead. scene. Yeah, and exactly. It's great. And it's great. So, it is really great. But. but 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 is that what you want? If you're if you're a director and you're truly trying to capture a, a, a character, shouldn't you put yourself aside and put get the character right first? 
But every not. filmmaker brings their style to a movie. I mean, like the thing that we we watch The Dark Knight because it's Christopher Nolan, but not style. to a fault. But not to a fault. Nolan brings his style to Dark Knight and chose to do The Dark Knight because he knew that that one matched the other. Nolan would never do Spider Man because he knows that his style doesn't align. Raimi, if Raimi wasn't able to to scale it back a little bit. And, and give us more Spider-Man and less Raimi than I think. I mean, that being said, I like Spider-Man too. I also agree with the faux, like, post 9-11, like, aren't we all friends in the streets of New York? Kevin, you've been to New York. At what point did anyone, would anyone be like, hey, go? They'd be like, screw this guy. He screwed up traffic. I disagree with that. I don't God, think. Here's come on. Here's the thing. I, come I, on. I, That's any major city. I yell at tourists to get out of the way and I'm in Chicago. Aren't there scenes asking you for a picture. Aren't there scenes in Spider-Man one where like tour like where New Yorkers are like don't care that he's like like like, like there, aren't there moments like that in the film? I, mean, I don't remember specifically. I have to go back and watch. I, I, I remember they're... what Sean is talking about, which is like yeah that that whole you mess with Spider-Man, you mess with us. I I, I, I understand Jake's point about the younger idea of uh, like yeah it'd be very interesting to see Tom Holland in that scene um, and to see Sean's reaction to what that would be. But you yeah. know I think that's what Infinity War did well is it captured that kid kid idea and so that's why i don't feel so good mr stark it it became a meme that's why it's because it was effective because that moment okay imagine that moment but toby Maguire saying it nothing it wouldn't work well downey downey um (laughs) also sells that really well uh especially when they get up because of what they set up in homecoming which is him saying if something happens to you that's on me that's the first thing i thought of whenever uh, whenever Tom Holland faded away, was the flashback that scene of Homecoming? If something happens to you, I if they don't if they don't milk that for all it's worth in Avengers four, they've missed a great opportunity. But even with um even when in, uh when uh, uh in Infinity War when they fi- first get up to the, when they finally get up to that spaceship and uh, and uh, Downing realizes that Spidey has come along with him, um just the the parenting mode that he goes into uh and, and you know this is a one way ticket uh, I think he says to uh. Spidey, and then they, and then, and then, and then and I always love that they just like they'll go serious, and then they counter it with awesome. Like they'll just, like they'll just counter it with the aliens reference, and then it just becomes fun again. Like those guys, the Russos just bounce that movie so well. It's just I'll so tell you well one. Done. There's one, and then we'll move on after this. There's one line reading in Infinity War that captures who Spider-Man is more than the Raimi films and more than the Web films ever understood. And this is how you know that it's in Marvel's hands, and they know what they're doing. Spider-Man is attached to that spaceship and it's reaching the atmosphere and he can't even breathe. Yes. And Stark has to say to him, like, kid, let go. You're going to start losing breath. And he says, you told me to to stop the wizard. Like, if you tell Spider-Man do this, he's not going to stop until he does it. Right. And he doesn't even read. He's so laser focused in like, well, Tony Stark told me I have to do this. I have to do it. And that's what he that's who he is. He is. Holland's the best Spider-Man, no question. Yeah. Uh, he is unbelievable. And every scene he's had in Infinity War and Civil War is better than any Spider-Man movie that's come out. I just think as a whole, Spider-Man 2 is the best Spider-Man movie. As a whole, that's all. Uh, we said we were going to pay tribute to Burt Reynolds in this week's hashtag Reynolds game, not to be confused with Ryan Reynolds. And man, do I wish that he replied to your tweet because that would have been fantastic. Kevin reached out to Ryan Reynolds via social media to see if we could get, because the Deadpool on the bearskin rug is a Ryan is a Burt Reynolds tribute right. from when burt reynolds did it in the nude um and of course we fair, lost burt reynolds recently which is sad but i'm sorry kevin no to be fair ryan reynolds is probably shooting up that michael bay movie right now so he might not have time to uh get back I, he to needs us. to get his priorities straight <laughs> yeah really i want him to weigh in on on netflix and theaters also too so yeah. um we are again hashtag reynolds blend and i've been told that kevin gets to go first so kevin give us your pick for your favorite oh i get to go burt first reynolds movie i had a i had a tough time with this one only because 
Uh, it's been a long time since I've watched a lot of the classic Burt Reynolds movies. Um, but the character that came to mind first was Boogie Nights. I, yeah. I think I, I I just love well one that I love he's a filmmaker, well a porn director. Um, but I, I, I but I also just I love the way he carries himself in that film. It, it, and like the beauty of what Paul Thomas Anderson did with Boogie Nights is there are so many characters in that movie, and Mark Wahlberg is clearly the leading character, but everybody has an impactful moment and scene, uh, or scenes. I mean, I always think of the Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, sequence with William, and then the William H. Macy scene when he catches his wife cheating on him, the, the tracking shots of the car. Uh, I just think of Burt Reynolds, and I just love every scene he's in in that film, the way he carries himself, the way he the way he responds and reacts to the other characters, uh, the roller girl sequence. I mean, just, there's just so many moments in that movie that I, I think back on, I go, man, Burt Reynolds is so fantastic in that role, and he was so perfectly cast in that role. And he's Burt Reynolds. Uh, you know, Burt Reynolds, obviously, at the height of his fame, going back to the earlier movies, but that was such a great, I, I guess, a resurgence for him, in my opinion. I don't, I don't remember what he had done prior to Boogie Nights, like, in the sense of, like, earlier. I know his earlier classics, but what I mean is prior to Boogie Nights, maybe the years leading up to it, what, what you know, I don't remember what he was doing. He went through a phase doing. where he kind of mailed it in. Right. In a couple it, of bad comedies. I feel like it was almost like Travolta uh, getting re, getting that resurgence in Pulp Fiction Very by so. Quentin Tarantino. Um, so I think that, I don't know, I just love him in that movie. And, I, and that, that film is so, it's so well done. And I think Paul Thomas Anderson really has gotten, he's like a Tarantino to me where he gets really the best performances from actors. Um, if you think about Paul Thomas Anderson, I think one of the greatest performances ever is Tom Cruise in Magnolia. And what mm. a random role, right? And I think that he just has an eye for actors and what roles they're going to play. And Reynolds was perfect casting for that character. And he played it masterfully. And I yeah. think that that's probably my, probably my favorite go-to when I think of Burt Reynolds is that movie. And I, I know he's made better movies, but that's my favorite performance of his. Man, I, 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 I love that he's really? a director. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that, maybe that is one of his best. I don't know. Maybe it might be his best. Jake. Yeah. Uh, I also chose Boogie Nights and oh, nice. um, for a lot of reasons. Here, you know, it's interesting with someone like Burt Reynolds because because I didn't grow up with him. Yeah, I sort of watched his filmography out of order. Same. So it wasn't until I had to like genuinely sort of stop and think about the order in which he made things and released things and was at the peak of his career and then dipped down a little bit and then came back with Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights is so completely different than the Burt Reynolds he spent decades convincing audiences right. that he was, mm-hmm. and not just character-wise, because it's one thing to take a different character than you've ever taken before, but taking it and then running with it and showing after <laughs> decades that he had the still had the skill set to deliver a certain sort of surprising performance. I mean, people that watched him his entire life watched that performance in Boogie Nights and saw things that they'd never seen before. There, were, right. there was no no hint of, of Smoking the Bandit or, or, or Deliverance in there. And there's this... He, he tap dances between... This like weirdly comedic role that's sometimes yeah. like borderline laugh out loud funny, but then also between this really dark, vicious character that is kind of just Scary. out for himself. Yeah. And so it's one of those characters that like at first, you know, when I first think about the character, I'm like, oh man, like what a funny character. And then I kind of stop and go, wait, no, oh my God, no, he's a horrible character. And then I pause and I go, no, but he was really funny in this. And and so to me to go back and forth like that. I don't know who won Best Supporting Actor that year. I know that was Burt Reynolds' lone Oscar nomination. I can try to figure it out while I'm... Oh, he got nominated for that, really? He got nominated. Wow. It's his his, uh, lone nomination 
Um, I didn't know you got nominated. But I, uh, short of it being someone where I go, holy crap, who else could it have been? While Jake's um, looking this up, by the way, this is making me really depressed that we're not going to get to see him in Tarantino's movie. Oh, that breaks my heart, dude. I, I, yeah. I, I actually forgot oh. he got cast in that Once yeah. Upon a Time in Hollywood. And then someone said, not to sound like a ghoul, but I really hope he shot his scenes already. And then it turned out he hadn't shot any of it. So I guess he's going to have to get recast. I don't know. I don't even know who he's playing, but you're exactly right. In much the same way that PTA does, Tarantino gets great performances out of character actors like that, who you don't expect to see on screen. And that he just chooses them for the, for the right part of an ensemble. You know that that character would have been awesome. Like yeah. I, I have a feeling that that would have been a ma- I, I just, I, I know we know Tarantino's style so well. Oh, damn. Who did he, he lose, lose to? to? Uh, sh- Robin Williams and Goodwill Hunting. Oh, oh, yeah. I don't know, man. Wow. Uh, it was Robin Williams, Goodwill Hunting, wow. Robert Forrester for Jackie Brown, Ooh. Anthony Hopkins for Amistad, Greg Kinnear for As Good as It Gets, and Burt Reynolds for Boogie Nights. Holy God, what a stacked yeah. category. Yeah. That's yeah. insane. I, I, I don't still see. Think I, I'm sorry. I can't, I can't take it out of Robin Williams' hands. No, I, I think just Williams can't. gets it. Yeah. Williams gets it for that. Sorry, Bert. Wow, that's a really that 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 that's almost as good as the year where Best Picture was Forrest Gump, Pulp Fiction, and Shawshank. That's actually, yeah. I don't. That's a hard. I mean, Greg best can, actor that year was Nicholson, Matt Damon, Robert Duvall, Peter Fonda, and Dustin Hoffman. Holy cow! Kinnear is even great and as good as it gets. Kinnear is great as good as it gets. Great movie. That's a wonderful movie. God, wonderful movie. Wait, that was a pretty good trivia question, and let me see if you guys can get this. As Good As It Gets was the most recent film where the same movie won Best Actor and Best Actress. Can you think of what the other one was? Same movie won Best Actor and Best... So that year, you're saying Helen Hunt and... You ha- you're saying it's happened, it's happened more it's recently happened than one that? Other, one other time. Was it after In, as good in as like it the past 30 years or something like Silence that. Silence of the Lambs? It's Silence of the Lambs, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice job. Is it, can someone, can someone please, and I'll put this out to our viewers because I've never sat down and done this. Is it really true that he's only on screen for 16 minutes, Anthony Hopkins in? Oh yeah. I read it was something like 18 minutes or something like that. Someone please, uh, like someone who counted our name drops, watch (laughs) that movie for us. I want to know if that's true because I've read 16 minutes, I've read 18 minutes. I remember interviewing Anthony Hopkins and Bruce Willis for Red 2 and I, and I brought that fact out. And I think I said 16 minutes because I had read it and I was like, oh man, I hope I had that right. And I guess it's, it's, it's something like that. It's, it's something, something like astronomically super shocking. Small. Yeah, like any one leading actor, uh, because you can feel his presence in the whole film. But man, oh, yeah. it's a great totally. Yeah. Um, okay, I did grow up with Burt Reynolds because I'm the old man on the podcast. And I did not pick Boogie Nights, although I admit that that's probably his best film. Um, and I didn't pick Deliverance because it's this, we're picking favorites, and I don't. That's not my favorite film at all. My God, that's such a brutal, horrible film. Although he's very, Squeal very like good a in pig. It. Um, I picked mm. the Cannibal Run. Oh, and, and here's why: Burt Reynolds played Burt Reynolds his entire career. Like that's all he played. Burt Reynolds. Like he's not an ask an actor who risks and stretches and Daniel Day Lewis's himself into a movie. He basically just said, "Look, this is who I am, and you guys are going to cast me this way." So he made you know, City Heat with Clint Eastwood, and he made all the Smokey and the Bandit movies, um, but he was basically playing Burt Reynolds. And by the time he got to Boogie Nights, he saw all his contemporaries start to change gears like Clint Eastwood and reinvent themselves as dramatic actors and filmmakers. And Burt just never seemed really interested in doing that because he was so uh, 
had such a lucrative career alongside Lonnie Anderson, and Dom DeLuise, just making movies where they let him be Burt Reynolds. So you got Stoker Ace and and films like that. But the the, the Cannibal Run movie to me is such an amazing concept because you can't make a movie like that anymore where you have so many names uh, together, you know, for an ensemble film, that's just a goofball throwaway comedy for people who've never seen the cannibal run. It's, it's a race from one coast to the next. And it's just cheesy bit after cheesy bit uh, modeled after, you know, Roger Moore is in it, but he's essentially playing James Bond and it's um, Dean Martin's in it. Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. and it essentially playing themselves. Yeah, They're drunk yeah. the whole time. They're driving. It's a, and it's, Bert, a, it's a prequel to the Kessel Run, right? <laughs> Jesus Christ! I, I quit. Why did you do? That? I quit. I quit the podcast. <laughs> but I love the concept of the Cannonball Run, and it's and I love the fact they even made a second one too. And Bert in that movie plays. I've the, never seen the second one. Oh, it's bad. It's really it? bad. Not that the first one is great, but but it's it really is a mail it in because we can capitalize on the on the uh, the name selling some tickets. But Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise had some really great comedic chemistry uh, together. And Burt in Cannibal Run specifically, because he'd already established kind of who he is as a persona, plays a guy who's detached from all the lunacy and, and just watches everybody around him do crazy things. And I thought that was a lot of fun to watch. So. I think his best movie is absolutely Boogie Nights, but my favorite movie. If I'm going to try to t- say to somebody, this is who Burt Reynolds was, I'm throwing Cannibal Run into the uh, the DVD player and showing them uh, that bit of inspired lunacy. Why is Wikipedia say that Cannibal Run is also known as Carquake? Is that a, is that, is that like a, is that like a, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that, that like was its title. Like trivia. Yeah. Internationally. Huh. I'm not sure. Um, I will say, and I'll tell a very quick personal oh, wait, story. No, that- Wrong movie. That's called Cannonball. Forgive me. I was reading in my senior year of high school. Um, we organized a Cannonball Run, where on the last day of school, we were going to race from our high school to the um, easternmost point of Long Island, uh, to Montauk Point, and we circulated flyers uh, for all the seniors on the final day of school to participate in the Cannonball Run, which we knew was you know borderline illegal. We were organizing a race from our school to it would be like a two-hour drive, basically. And before we went into our final exam, uh, we were gathered in the hallway getting ready to prep for our final exam. And a principal, the principal comes out into the hallway and is holding one of our flyers and calls us into his office and says, can we talk to you guys about this? Can we talk to you? And of course, stupidly, me and three of my friends put our names at the bottom of the the flyer (laughs) of being organized by us. And uh, said, essentially, he was going to call all of our families and was prepared to call the authorities if we were going to host a race out to uh, Montauk Point. So this was the pressure put on us as we were heading into our final exam that he basically uh, took all the, the wind out of the sails of the, the faux cannonball run that we were trying to stage on our, for our senior year. We still went. We just didn't race. And uh, yeah, I know. But but uh, except for two of my friends who got in a lot of trouble, <laughs> who got in a lot of trouble. And we're not able to, to make the run. So that was when I pretended to be Burt Reynolds in my senior year of high school. So next week. Oh, we have audience picks. Michael Bergeron. Ber- Bergeron, Bergeron. 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 Says the end, uh, which is a really funny and dark Dom DeLuise, Burt Reynolds movie. Um, Chris Falk says Boogie Nights. And then Jason Ship agrees with me and says Cannonball Run. So hey, there you go. There you go. There there you go. go. Next week, um, I wanted to get into comedies. And uh, I wanted to get into the films of Eddie Murphy. Ooh, so uh, let's ooh. play oh, I know hash- mine. hashtag Murphy blend. 
because it's a wide range of uh, yeah. performances and films. Mine's easy. Right so let's to play, me. Let's play Eddie Murphy's uh, movies. Really? Jake? Yeah. Mine comes right to me. No, mine's, mine's Instantaneously. Harder. I have a oh. few. Yeah, I know what my, Kevin's I, is. I thought what mine was, and then mine, I, what I thought mine was is what I assume Kevin's is, and then I'll start thinking about all the other ones he's done. Remember, we're discussing favorites, not best here, right? Favorite. Okay, yeah, favorite. Your favorite right. Eddie Murphy I, I, so, I, know what, I think I know what Kevin's is. Play along using hashtag Murphy Blend, and you can also do hashtag uh, Kevin's pick. Uh, at, yeah. You can guess what you think Kevin's pick is. If you've listened <laughs> to the show enough, I think you can figure out what it is. Yeah. Uh, we will be back <laughs> next week sometime. Um, we have some travel that we have to work around. I have the Venom Junk coming up jake's taking a big trip um kevin's always busy but we will put on the twitter feed at real blend um you guys can follow us there we are uh, 297 followers we're so close to 300 damn. so be our 300th follower and um i'll have the guy we sent the cake to for the 200th follower send you a picture of the cake of, that he of said cake yeah of said cake and uh go to itunes leave us a star rating and a review we will talk to you guys next week. Thank you so much for tuning into the Facebook page. Thank you so much for downloading us on iTunes and Spotify and Google Play and all those things. Send cold medicine to Jake. Um, tell Kevin he's wrong about Amazing Spider-Man 2, about Spider-Man 2, and we will talk to you guys next week. And Dunkirk. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.